0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of a Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 128. It's titled, Is There Too Much Savings? Before beginning today's topic, I need to correct a mistake I made. In last week's episode I said the fax the taxi fare from LaGuardia Airport to Park Slope in Brooklyn would run upwards of $80 and Abe who runs this site com, he's a retired New York City taxi driver and he is scanning the interwebs and finding false statements on New York Taxi Drivers and cabs. And, and I made one. So he says, that I'm off by half. That it, it And I ran it through a fare estimator. And sure enough, it's $40.24 from LaGuardia to Park Slope. And another listener write me and said, the only way it could be $80 if the taxi cab was driving in circles like my Uber driver was. So I apologize. I based the $80 based on the fares that I typically pay. pay, pay Pay between go, from going from LaGuardia to Midtown and back. In fact, we took a cab from Midtown back to LaGuardia Airport when we flew out last week, and it was sixty dollars in including tip. I think the actual fare was was roughly forty five dollars. So it which is which is a it's closer from LaGuardia to Midtown than it is from LaGuardia down to Park Slope, which is on the basically south of the tip of Manhattan, but. That's how the fares work, so I stand corrected. We are, LaParle and I, are restoring a 1920s prairie-style home in Idaho Falls, where we're moving at the end of the month. Piers, we have sold our farmhouse. We're keeping half the land, but sold half the land and the farm and all the outbuildings and plan on moving at the end of the month. And as part of the restoration, we just had our electrician install two ceiling lights in the living room. They are LED flush mount lights, and there are no light bulbs to replace. When the lights no longer work, the entire fixture will need to be replaced. Now, given the average light in the American home is on for on average about 1.6 hours per day, and the estimated life of these lights we just installed is 25,000 hours, our new living room lights should last approximately 42 years. By then, we will most likely have moved, be dead, or are so sick of flush-mounted lights that we would have replaced them. The systematic replacement of incandescent light bulbs with longer-lasting LED bulbs and lights is having a profound impact on the lighting industry. Market analysts such as the IHS Technology and Strategies Unlimited predict that in 2019 the global lighting industry will reach quote socket saturation in which enough incandescent bulbs will have been replaced been replaced by LED bulbs that overall light bulb sales will begin to decline. In the 1920s, light bulb manufacturers also worried about socket saturation, although they didn't call it that. But as light bulb technological advances led to longer lasting bulbs, with many incandescent bulbs lasting 1,500 to 2,000 hours. And the thought would be as the life kept being extended, homes, households would buy less, need to buy less and less bulbs. Now, 1,500 to 2,000 hours, that compares to an average life for an incandescent bulb about 1,200 hours, which is only about a tenth of what you can get for LEDs, 25,000 hours or more for LED bulbs. So how is it today's incandescent bulbs are inferior in terms of lifespan compared to 90 years ago? There's a term, I'm sure you've heard of it, planned obsolescence. It's designing something to fail, so it needs to be replaced. In December 1924, representatives from the leading light bulb makers, including General Electric from the United States, Phillips from the Netherlands, Germany, Osram, Osram, O-S-R-A-M, and others met in Geneva to f- organize the Phoebus Cartel. Not only did the members divide the world into exclusive regions with production quotas, but they also agreed to reduce the average lifespan for standard incandescent bulbs to 1,000 hours. Researcher Markus Krajewski reports that German bulb manufacturer Ostrom's saw light bulb sales plummet 55% from 63 million bulbs in the financial year 1922 to 23 to 28 million bulbs. The following year. This volatility in sales was driving these manufacturers bonkers because it was hard to plan for production. So thanks to the cartel and planned obsolescence, Phoebus members' annual light bulb sales stabilized and then grew from $335.7 million in fiscal year 1927-28 to $420.8 million four years later. Meanwhile, The average light bulb life dropped by a third from 1,800 hours to 1,205 hours between 1926 and 1933. In addition, profit margins increased as light bulb prices held steady, as manufacturing costs fell, and the average light bulb life declined. This is all data from Marcus Krajewski. Today, light bulb manufacturers can no longer depend on a cartel to protect their profits. Increased competition and pending socket saturation have hurt profitability. Although recently, LED bulb manufacturers have stabilized their margin due to productivity improvements and cost innovation like less phosphorus usage, which is a key component to LED lights. But meanwhile, LED bulb prices are plummeting. According to LED Inside, the average price for a 60-watt equivalent LED light bulb was up $12.70 in September 2016. Three years ago, that same bulb cost over $20, and five years ago, over $40. Now, while LED light bulbs are an extreme example of extending the life of products, subverting planned obsolescence, if if you can extend the life, then things don't fail as as much and so that this planned obsolescence gets subverted, we see this trend in other areas. For example, automobiles are lasting longer, and consumers are keeping them longer. The average age of a passenger car on U.S. roads was 8.4 years in 1995. It was 10 years in 2004, and 11.4 years in 2014, according to the Bureau Bureau of Transportation Statistics. Consumers are also holding on to their computers, tablets, and smartphones longer. The average age of desktop computers worldwide was four and a half years in 2006. In 2015, it was 5.6 years, according to the website Statista. Consumer Intelligent Research Partners found the number of iPhones that were more than two years old jumped to 49% of all iPhones in March 2016, from 34% in June 2013. So we're holding on to our goods, our cars, our electronics, longer. And one reason is newer models often aren't significantly better than existing models in terms of their core functionality to justify the cost of switching. LePro and I have been out show, stove shopping for uh, this, this home we're restoring that we're moving to. The current home at our farmhouse, it's over 50 years old. It's, it's a classic stove, you, you turn it on and it heats up. And so as we're shopping for stoves, I, I'm looking at different prices and and we don't need a lot of features. We just need the thing to turn on. We're not going to pay $2,000 for a stove with all types of fancy bells and whistles. We just need it to heat and cook food. So what is the economic impact if households are holding Products longer before they replace them, and you also have downward price pressures, like you see with LED bulbs, where prices are falling. Well, it leads to slower economic growth because corporations. So, economic growth we're measuring gross domestic product. It's the dollar value of output produced by in terms of goods and services. And if corporations, manufacturers are seeing that that consumers are replacing their products less frequently, then they're going to slacken their rate of production of new services. And if prices are falling at the same time, like they are for bulbs, and the aggregate dollar value, the goods they actually make, is also weighing down GDP. I mean, it's just not growing as fast because the dollar value, they're slowing the rate of production and the dollar value, what they produce is falling. And so overall GDP growth, it, it just doesn't grow as fast. And, and we've seen that impact now that could also lead to lower corporate profitability if you're selling less and at lower prices then profits can fall and that in turn can lead to lower returns for stocks because stocks over the long term are going to be driven by how fast are our profits growing which is tied to some extent to the growth rate in in the economy at least a per person growth rate in the economy Today's below-trend economic growth can accelerate from its lackluster pace if s- several things happen. We as households can p- replace existing products faster. So just increase the cycle, buy more and more bulbs faster, or replace our car more frequently. That helps the economy. We can purchase new categories of products that didn't previously exist. Perhaps we go out and buy a drone or some other type of robot, maybe some 3D-type virtual reality-type glasses or just new product categories. Or we can pay more to buy and maintain higher quality products that last longer. So if the dollar value of what we pay is higher quality over the life cycle of the product, if it's actually the value and we hopefully we a higher quality product will get more intrinsic value out of it but over the lifespan if what we paid is more than buying cheap things that we constantly replace then we can have a higher growth economy now one of the new LED lights manufacturers that talked about is Cree and they their idea is... For consumers, they're framing LED lights as gadgets that need to be upgraded when new features come on board. And the primary feature is better light. Al Safaricus, who is vice president of consumer product marketing for Cree, he was quoted in an article by in the New Yorker by J.B. McKinnon, and his quote is, better light makes the colors in the objects that is illuminated more accurate more vivid and more true so cree offers sort of better lights better so they're a little more expensive but they're saying the light is better they also have app driven lights can be scheduled remotely they can be remotely dimmed brightened turned on and off now in the case of cree it's actually working i'm going to replace some led bulbs our electrician we also installed a light in the study off the living room and there it's a, an actual bulb. And our electrician put a bulb in, and, and you can only describe the, the, the light in the way that J.B. McKinnon, in the, in the New Yorker author, described cheap LED bulbs. He says that cast the kind of light that gives a zombie pallor to human skin. It's a, a bluish, ugly light in our study. I'm going to go out and buy a Cree bulb and, and see if I indeed can get better, more realistic light, and that in turn, will help the economy. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution, I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com. david What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H dot slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion, primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Spending less and holding things longer, as I mentioned, leads to lower or slower economic growth, but it also can increase savings. If If we're spending less money, then we're saving more. And that can have an impact on interest rates and bonds. There was an article that I'll link to in the show notes by The Economist, and it was on the persistently low interest rates. And we talked about low interest rates, negative interest rates, back in episode 122, why negative interest rates are dangerous. Well, this this article in The Economist was just looking at various reasons. One being it's central bank driven, that low policy rates and large scale asset purchases through quantitative, quantitative easing are driving down longer term rates. And in addition, we have new capital regulations that require banks and insurance companies to keep more of their assets in safe, liquid investments, including government bonds. And so that is pushing downward pressure on rates. And there is some truth to that. And we talked about that in episode. 122. But there's another reason mentioned in that Economist article, and I've mentioned in earlier episodes of the show, is that central banks are responding to underlying forces, that the real interest rates, so the interest rates after backing out inflation expectations, is decided by a balance of supply and demand for the pool of global savings. You have those that are saving, And then you have those that use the savings in terms of borrowing for debt. And there is an equilibrium real rate of interest where that balances out. And so if the supply of global savings is going up, then that can put downward pressure on interest rates. And we've seen that. This is what Alan Greenspan called a conundrum. In 2004, the Federal Reserve began raising short-term rates... As the housing bubble was raging. But long-term rates fell. And, and typically you would expect, you know, with, if if the economy is going along very very strongly, that long-term rates would increase because of all the borrowing associated with, with, with building of houses. And but we what we found is that rates fell, and it wasn't because expectations for inflation were falling. They stayed about the same. It's the real rate that fell. The real rate on the – and the way we can look at real rates is look at what is the yield on treasury inflation protection securities. That's a proxy for real rates because TIPS are th- – essentially their principle is adjusted by inflation. And so they they are bonds. They're inflation-protected bonds. And so that whatever yield is on those bonds, that's a good proxy for the real rate of interest. And it was, it was over 2% in, in sort of the 2004 period. And then it fell by 2007. It was around 1%. So you had declining real rates of interest. And real rates have been declining since the 1990s. Greenspan called it a conundrum. Later, Ben Bernanke said it was a savings glut. There is a paper... An academic paper that's called "Low for Long: Causes and Consequences of Persistently Low Interest Rates." It's it's called it's, it's the Geneva Report is what it is, and it's put together by the International Center for Monetary and Banking Studies and the Center for Economic Policy Research. I mean, it was a fascinating description of why rates are low, and it, the focus is on this this savings glut that we're saving too much. You can get. You can find that paper, a link to that paper, at moneyfortherestofus.net and the show notes for episode 128. While you're there, if you're not a member of my free insider's guide, and you would have already had those those links if you are a member, in that weekly email I sent at, right after the podcast re- release, I send out an email with a summary article and all the show notes as well as valuable content from earlier episodes. You can always sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. And while you're there, go ahead and sign up for my free investment course, Learn to invest in seven steps. And as a U.S.-based listener, you, if you just want to, you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44222 and sign up for my Insider's Guide that way. So this paper by the, the Center for Economic and Policy Research said that, talked about how the declines in real yield, particularly for longer-term rates, began in the late 1990s. And it wasn't due to declining inflation expectation. But their analysis, they said, shows that the increase, the rates were falling because of an increase in the propensity to save. That households wanted to save more. And the primary reason for that were demographic developments. That the population was aging and needed to save for retirement. So that was a big component. Another component is income inequality. As income inequality has increased, the rich have gotten more savings and the rich are are more likely to save. As they get more income, they're more, more likely to save their income than those that are poor that needed to buy goods and services. That had an impact. Another impact that led to the global savings glut was the integration of China into global financial markets. China, and we've talked about this in earlier episodes, was running huge trade surpluses. And so they had lots and lots of dollars that they in turn invested in U.S. government bonds to put downward pressure on interest rates. Plus, you had billions of people in China where household savings is 40%. And, and because the household savings is so, and as they get integrated into the global financial market, that, that's a huge inflow of households that want to save, 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 puts downward pressure on interest rate rates. Now, they also found there was less support for the idea that there were less investment by corporations. Now Now, corporations have invested less in capital projects. Due to you know following the financial crisis, but it, it's starting to ramp up. But they show over the long term as they go back to the 1990s and see this downward decline in real interest rates that it's not due necessarily to a lack of investment. It's due to more and more savings. Now, one of the investments that we're seeing is what's called essentially a, a leverage recapitalization, where companies are borrowing money and debt balances, according to the IMF, just hit that they're their ultimate high. In other words, they're at all times high in terms of global debt balances. I'll link to that article. I don't remember the, the exact number, but it just it came out in the last week, or so I'll link to that in the show notes. But one use of that debt is actually in the end increases savings because the companies leverage up, they borrow money, and then they do a huge special dividend to the shareholders and, and pay off the, the shareholders and they get a special dividend. So the company's more levered, the the shareholders get a special dividend, now they have more savings that they, again, have to invest. Now, this downward pressure on interest rate, this is a long-term trend, the drop in the real rates. And one of the risks is it forces savers to reach for yield, and and potentially that can spark speculative asset booms and busts. And we've seen that, we've talked about that on the show and particularly the concern is when rates do rise again, how will that impact other risk assets who as the their valuation is dependent on the extent investments are future cash flows brought in future expected cash flows brought into the present as rates go up the value of those cash flows, decline as quoted in today's dollars. And so that can put some downward pressure on risk assets. So the timing of when rates might eventually rise, it's uncertain, but it's, it's a concern. And, and it's, it's one of my biggest concerns as an investor. And it's something we've talked about both on the show as well as on the money for the rest of Us hub. The particular paper that I'm referencing Talked about what what can change that we'll see that sort of reverse it so maybe we don't have as much of a savings glut, and one thing is that the high savings of mid, of the middle age as they move into retirement, the baby boob generations, they will begin to dissave because they need that savings to live on. So that potentially could draw down the fact that China is trying to move to more domestic demand and have less of an export oriented, investment-focused growth, but more domestic growth driven by households. That will lead to, to lower trade surpluses and less savings that 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 essentially the Central Bank of, of China has to invest in treasury bonds in the U.S., but it also means households in China will eventually be saving less, and, and their savings rates have dropped because they're spending more. So that also will reduce the savings glut. But these are long-term trends. It's something, and we just have to understand the underlying forces. And one of the things that we can monitor is treasury inflation protection securities. We can look at what are the real yields. Are real yields going up? One of the conversations we had on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub is when is a great time to invest in TIPS if you want to protect against inflation? And one of the best times is when real rates are high. And one of the the studies I do for the monthly investment conditions report on the hub is I show what is the real yield for five-year, seven-year, and 10-year tips. And right now, the real yield on the 10-year Treasury Inflation Protection Security is 0.1%. Seven-year is negative 0.1, and the five-year real yield is negative 0.2. So that you're not getting paid because you're trying to, with, with a tip or a Treasury Inflation Protection Security, you're trying to hedge against, trying to protect that real yield. And if real yields are so low, there's not a whole lot of protection that you're doing. You're not just, you're just essentially not getting any type of yield at all. I remember in the fall of 2008 was the last great time that I found to buy tips. There was a short period, just a matter of a few weeks, where real yields jumped to over And I bought tips and and my family members bought tips and we are able to benefit from that. And so we want to monitor the real yield. We also want to monitor what's known as the break-even inflation rate. We're looking at the nominal yield, say the nominal yield on the 10-year treasury, and then we're backing out the real yield on the tip. And that is what's known as the break-even inflation rate. So for example, right now, For the 10-year, the break-even inflation is 1.6%. What that means is if inflation over the next 10 years comes in above 1.6%, then you would have done well holding a tip because you would have protected your inflation. But it's also a way to monitor inflation expectations, which remain very low, less than 2% over the next 10 years, and real rates remain low. So we want to monitor. As those things start to change, then... Potentially, the risk to stocks and other risk assets uh, can increase. It depends on how fast it's happening, though. And so it gets back to why we monitor investment conditions, why we want to see what's going on to see if risks are accelerating. But for now, we continue to have a global savings glut. These long-term trends are in place. We still have central banks being very accommodative. They're keeping their short-term policy rates very, very low. Perhaps the Federal Reserve will raise rates in December, but they've been the last time they raised rates was a year ago. So it's something we're going to monitor. And, but that is why there's so much savings. It's demographic-driven. It's the impact of China coming on board. And when these things eventually unwind, then per, perhaps at that point we'll see interest rates go up And then we start getting some yield again. That would be nice to get some yield on our savings. As I mentioned, you can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you want to explore the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, look at the monthly investment conditions report, the audio commentary. If you want to get some help in terms of model portfolios or asset allocation, you can get that and learn more about that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered... Your specific risk profile have not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.